Welcome to the Talking With Tech Podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. What's going on, Rachel? Hey, Chris. I wanted to chat with you today about a question that I got, and I feel like you have the specific experience that could be super valuable to this question. Are you ready for I will certainly try. Let's let's bring it on. Let's let's see what we can brainstorm together. Okay. So I got this message on, I think it was Facebook, about a week ago, and I... I'm really feeling for this this woman who reached out to me. I'm going to read her question. She says, I work for a small school district, and this year will be my third year going into the district and as an SLP. During my first year, I asked my administrator about the steps to begin attempting to obtain funding for a student who needed an AAC evaluation done. I was hoping to get advice on the exact process in my school district. I had even reached out to a local AAC consultant and tried to educate myself before I talked with my administrator. Well, there isn't a process, long story short. And she asked actually basically encouraged me to recommend low tech and said it's the job of an outpatient SLP to try to get a child in the AAC system. I love my district, but obviously this was devastating to me because none of that is accurate. Any tips on how to navigate this? I have other students who also need evaluations and I'm not sure what to do. Hmm. Okay, well, that is a conundrum there. First of all, I love how she ended that email that um, or that, that message that uh, she knows it's not right. That's not right. That's not accurate. And there's this phrase that has stuck in my head ever since the Carly Stoltenberg. Am I saying her name right, Rachel, of that that episode? I know you interviewed her, and I remember listening to it. And I think it was Carly who said, you climbed this mountain because it was put in front of you, right? So this is this person's task, right? Is like, this doesn't exist. It's not right. And so this is my mountain, right? This is the mountain I'm going to have to change. So the first question that I would ask this person to ask their school district is, well, how does anyone get anything? Like, what's the process for anything? Like, if a student has a visual impairment and they can't see the screen, how do they get, um, how do we think through the process of what they might use to potentially uh, zoom in or then maybe even get a a larger screen device, you know, like they've must have spent money somewhere along the way to get somebody who has a disability something. So I wouldn't take no as an answer for there. I would I would dig in saying, well, there's got to be a process to get somebody something. How does that sound like as a first step? I think that makes a lot of sense, Chris, because I think you're right. There has to be somewhere in the history of the school where they've provided some type of tool or technology for a student in order for them to access their curriculum, which is basically the school district's job, right? As school districts, they need to provide the supports that allow kids to access their education. And so it's like AAC is no different than that and even more important because if kids don't have communication, then how are they able to access their curriculum? Um, The answer is they're not. And so, you know, I think that starting off with just figuring out the process for any type of perhaps assistive technology or any, you know, tool that could help support students um, maybe outside of AAC and figure out what that process is makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I'm almost hoping that the answer comes back and the answer is, well, we actually don't have a process. Like someone suggested a particular tool and we put it in place and that's what we did. And there isn't some sort of process in place. And the reason I'm sort of hoping that's the answer is because having a process in place that is not effective or that is wrong or that is not really efficient 
um, is a lot harder to break down than building one yourself. I mean, there's a huge opportunity here to not have to tear down something that exists because so many people will be anchored to that. Well, this is how we've always done it. Or um, uh, I was taught that I have to do it this way. And once I've taught that I was had to do it this way, changing my mind becomes really hard. So if you really, truly have an opportunity to build it, you can build it how you want. You don't necessarily have to have um, an AC I'm going to put it in quotes here. You can see it, but just an AAC evaluation to get a student in a, a, a something. You can maybe work with that set process that we've talked about a thousand times on this podcast. But just to mention it again, we have a collaborative discussion around the student's abilities, the environment that the student is in, the task we're asking the student to do. And we use those sorts of um, that discussion as a, as a framework to decide the tools. Match that up with our, our feature matching. All right, let's now that we're having this discussion, let's make a list of things the student might need. Um, we know we want to keep the, the motor plan consistent. We know we need a robust vocabulary. We know that the student speaks a different language at home, so we need to have that, or maybe not, you know. We know we want to try and minimize the number of hits. Uh, does the student use eye gaze? Will they be using some other sort of... You make this list, and then you go looking for the tools. And so this is a huge opportunity to say, well, if something doesn't exist... I'll be the one to create it. I'll be able to bring it into this school district. That could be your legacy, you know, not just helping a handful of kids before you're um, before you move on to the next school district. But you've designed a system that will outlive you, that will um, change the lives of of hundreds, thousands of kids in the future, and that is exciting. It's an exciting opportunity. I love that, Chris. I'm inspired. <laughs> I want to I want to start this process. <laughs> um, I feel like you're right, though. It's in the sense that we do have an opportunity here to lay a foundation. One thing that really grinds my gears about this message is that this administra- administrator is likely not a speech language pathologist. Maybe, maybe that's wrong. Maybe they are. But like, Administrator should not be the one deciding whether or not a child should get low tech or high tech AAC. Like that is not, that's not their role, right? And so that's my my big issue with this is like, you know, it's our job as clinicians to make that decision. Um, and we do that, like you said, collaboratively using the set framework. I love it um, as a team. And it's just, it feels to me like, there's there's either not a process and someone doesn't want to deal with it. There's financial reasons why someone doesn't want to deal with it. Like and so my you know advice to this person would be like really ask a lot more questions to figure out what is the roadblock here. What's the real roadblock? Um, is it that the process just hasn't been started? But like if you're willing to start a process, they're willing to listen. Or is it there's some type of financial reasons or experience that you know this school district has had in the past with maybe a bad experience with. AAC or who knows what it could be, but I feel like the key here is asking more questions to get more information to figure out how you can move forward. So let's talk. Let's make the assumption here, uh, just in case it is this this, this situation, because uh, there might be other people listening that have the situation where it is financial. Like that's the administrator's thinking. Well, that's going to cost a lot of money. So one one thing you can do is recognize that that is the problem. Because if you can isolate that the money is the problem, then that is a whole different uh, set of strategies than if it is the philosophy or if it is uh, a belief that somebody has. That's a whole different argument. But if someone's like, look, let's just, like, let me whisper this behind the screen. We don't have money to pay for this. Okay, now that I know that's the problem, 
we can attack that because there's no shortage of funds out there to go and find that. Okay, let me apply for grants. There's local grants. There's state grants. There's definitely um, uh, national grants. There's definitely play- now is a time when people school districts are getting funds from the federal government um, due to the pandemic. What do we can I can give me a little pocket of that money to 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 prove to you that this will work, um, and then you can start small. Uh, you don't necessarily have to change the entire school district all at once. You could say, uh, maybe in this case, you want to because you don't want to, you want to be in compliance with federal law. Um, but if you're trying to, um, uh, to one, get the money, there's places you can go get the money and you can use that to then change the mindsets of other people because that'll give you evidence that, look, with just a little bit, this is what we're able to do. The other thing this reminds me of, Chris, is a prior banter. I have no idea when it was. It was a while ago. Remember when we talked about, we broke down how much money school districts spend on our hourly rate as speech language pathologists and how in the grand scheme of things, adding an extra 30 minutes of speech therapy a week to a child's IEP is way more expensive than buying an iPad, buying a speech generating device, getting a case for it, all of those things. And so I feel like that's another strategy to think about. Um, you know, perhaps that would resonate with a, an administrator. Um, cause I feel like that it, it, if it's a financial issue, like let's really look where the money's going, you know? Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. So I hope those are some strategies that will help this person that, that, that wrote you and maybe other people out there that are listening, um, to know that, uh, it's an opportunity. It's it, yes, it's not great that this is happening. It'd be great if, um, we were already much further along in this process. Um, but if it's, this is your chance, this is your chance to make a really big difference to many people's lives. And one more note, I feel like what happens, uh, I, and I'm not sure if this is happening with the person that reached out to me or not, but I know this happens a lot. And that's SLPs who feel like, well, I'm not an AAC expert. I'm not an AAC specialist. I don't know how to do AAC assessments. Um, so my recommendation would be to remember that you understand speech and language development, you understand how to support communication, and all of the stuff with the tools and the different AAC option, all those things you can learn over time. So don't let fear of not knowing what to do stop you from doing something, because I think that that's what happens. We get frozen in fear and then we don't move forward and we have kids sitting, not having access to communication even though we know that they need it. Um, So just start with what you know and build your skills over time. Could not agree more. I mean, what great advice. So, Rachel, tell us about the interview today. Super excited, Chris. I was so lucky to have um, done an interview actually on Instagram Live, which um, I hadn't I hadn't coordinated anything like that before um, I did this interview with Megan Roberts. Megan Roberts is out of Northwestern. She is an amazing researcher doing all types of really great work with coaching and early intervention. So, There's a lot of overlap with what we do, Chris, as AAC specialists and what Megan does as, you know, an early intervention specialist and obviously a a coaching advocate. Um, And so we talk all about different coaching strategies, how to approach parents as partners. Uh, We talk all about, you know, in AAC, let's get rid of this expert model um, just because we know that coaching is how we can really support communication partners best. Um, So there's, I've always seen a lot of overlap with early intervention and a family-based, you know, intervention model and AAC. Um, And so we talk all about coaching and we also talk about early intervention and AAC. Um, What do we do with kids when we know that they're good candidates for AAC and they're pretty young? Um, How do we navigate that process? So really excited to share this interview I did with Megan Roberts. 
great news, everybody. We're going to be presenting a pre-conference workshop for Closing the Gap called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour virtual workshop takes place over two days, October 7th and 8th, from 1 to 4 p.m. Central Time on each day. This interactive workshop explores strategies for teaching students of all ages language by engineering environments so all communicators have opportunities for rich, meaningful practice in the context of everyday routines. Participants will get to explore how to design experiences using interactive technologies, which empower the student and their support network, putting them on the path to achieve their lifelong language goals. During the workshop, we're going to take an in-depth look at building the skills of communication partners through structured training centered on both consulting and coaching. We'll be sharing the latest tools and strategies for establishing a culture of language learning using AAC. Everybody loves engaging tools. You can sign up now by going to bit.ly designAAC. That's bit.ly designAAC. Can't wait to see you guys there. Oh, and there's one more thing to mention, Rachel. What's that, Chris? I'm actually doing two pre-conferences on those days. I'll be presenting with the other authors of the new Inclusive Learning 365 book as well. The title of that pre-conference is Inclusive Learning 365, Breaking Down Barriers and Creating a Culture of Inclusivity by Design. That pre-conference is also on October 7th and October 8th, 2021, but it will be at 9 to 12 Central Time on those days. If you'd like to learn more about how to redesign educational experiences through an inclusive lens, then you can register for that pre-conference by going to bit.ly slash inclusivectg. That's bit.ly slash inclusivectg. Come spend the whole day with me. See you there. Megan, super excited to have you here. I'm going to just introduce you for people who don't know who you are. I'm really excited. Megan Roberts is an associate professor in SLP in the Roxland and Richard Pepper Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders. She started the Early Intervention Research Group at Northwestern University, where she researches early parent-implemented communication interventions for children with hearing loss, autism, and developmental language disorders. Thank you so much. I'm super pumped to talk to you, Megan. My pleasure. Thanks for um, having me and inviting me to be in awesome. space with you. Awesome. So just like start off with just talking a little bit about the research that you're doing. I know you just recently published some more research, which I was so excited to read um, and talk about today, but just kind of overview for everybody, you know, kind of how you got started down this like research journey. Yeah, so I'll start with what we're doing now. So mm -hmm. related to autism. So we focus on empowering and supporting parents um, to help their children learn social communication. Mm -hmm. And that means different things for different parents and um, means different things for different kids. But that's what we try to research from a kid perspective. So what does the kid bring to the table in terms of their characteristics and skills and awesomeness? Mm -hmm. And what do the parents bring in terms of what are their needs and strengths and areas that they might need support with? And so we study that in different ways. Um, and how I came to here is a, oh, it's a story for drinks. Um, it wasn't a direct route. Let me say that. And I will say that um, all of my best questions come from the families with whom I work. So they're mm -hmm. all, it's always like, I was working with this dad and noticed 
you know, I wasn't being super effective in how I was communicating, or I had this mm-hmm. little girl on my caseload and I didn't, there wasn't an evidence-based strategy that, that felt like it was good to me. And so that's where all the science, all of my science comes from is from like my, my uh, the families with whom I work. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm really interested in talking with you. I do a lot of work with AAC and this month we've been really focusing on the early intervention piece. How can we get kids who we know, you know, are showing signs of autism, started with AAC earlier. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to you all about early intervention and autism. It's Autism Awareness Acceptance Month. Um, we're rounding it out here. And I'm really pumped to have you on to talk about a little bit about your research and also just your experience. Um, you have a lot of really great strategies on how to coach parents. And I feel like that's applicable to so many different kinds of populations besides, you know, early intervention or besides just, you know, children with autism. And so I'm, I'm going to dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of parent training in general? Because I know, um, you know, there's there's even still some disconnect in early intervention about the way that we should be providing services. Um, so can you just speak a little bit to the parent training element and why that's so necessary? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's two, that's twofold. Number one, it's about dosage, right? And, you know, parents are with their kids all the time. And if we can teach a parent to, to use... Um, what a, a language facilitation strategy and PS I'd love to talk to you about AAC I have some students interested in yes. that and so I'm like I'm I'm like the wheels are turning right could we right. apply what we know with spoken language to AAC is it all that different yes that's a, also random well, we're but, gonna have yeah. to talk it at another yes. time we're gonna yes. set the next yes. this. Yes. <laughs> um, but I will say that so it's about dosage right so we want kids to have access to all of the goodies all of the time. And we can't do that as, as, as speech pathologists, right? We're not in the home. We're not the ones that are interacting all the time. That's, that's number one. These aren't in order of importance. The other thing is um, when we think about the parent child relationship and my belief is that that's where learning happens, right? In these periods of amazing joint engagement and where Mm -hmm. you are teaching in the moment to your kid and you're feeling just so great about it. And I think there's something to be said when you see a skilled provider elicit things that you as a parent are un- that is challenging for you. And I think that mm-hmm. might do something to your, your self-esteem as a mom mm-hmm. of many tiny humans. You know, it, it's, it's, there's this guilt, right, sometimes mm-hmm. of just like, am I doing all the things yep. that I can do? And I just, I don't know. I think there's, there's no suggest you, but I think it's also... I think it's also just about supporting parents so that they can see that they are so the expert on their kid. Mm-hmm. They've got all the skills and we're just like a little guide. We just help them. We're just like a coach. We're a coach. We're, everyone needs a coach in their life. You did a great job making dinner tonight, Meg. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that. And I completely yeah. agree. I think that when we come in and we uh, do a more like direct service delivery model. Um, one, I think we are telling parents that we like, this is what speech therapy looks like, right? Like it's me sitting across the table from your child. Um, and then it, it kind of, you know, defeats the purpose of one, like supporting those naturalistic opportunities, right? Within a child's everyday routines, which we know, um, is way more effective in generalizing the skills that we're teaching than, you know, me as, you know, a stranger to a child, um, sitting and doing some some type of contrived activity. Um, and so I think there's that element, but it's really interesting that you brought up the element of the, the guilt and like, wow, like I couldn't possibly do that. Um, and I think we need to be empowering families on 
Yes, you can. And I say that all the time to the families that I work with. Like, I'm not doing anything here that you can't do yourself. Um, and I think that's so important because parents, I think, feel um, they have these ideas in their head about what speech therapy looks like. Um, and I think that if we show them and coach them um, in, a, in a different kind of, uh, in a different way, I think that can really move the needle for all of our targets and also just like reframing and changing, shifting the paradigm in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to, to view ourselves as partners and not experts, mm -hmm. right? We bring 50%. We don't bring 60. We don't bring 90. Mm -hmm. We are never going to be an expert on that kid the way a, that way a mom is. I've seen time and time again, moms and dads, mostly moms are in our study, but mm -hmm. moms just know. They just know, know their kid so well. Their intuition yes. is usually right on. And then together we make such a great team. We bring, everyone brings important knowledge to that relationship. Yes, I completely agree with that. And I just had a call earlier today and it was like so obvious that this mama knew her son so well. And it was just like, I couldn't possibly ever have that level of insight into a child. Um, and so I think that, you know, we need to, to, to elevate that, right, uh, with the families that we work with. And I completely agree. Um, can you can you review a little bit of the signs of autism? Because you had an amazing Asha Leader article that I would recommend everybody go read um, as an SLP, where you talked a lot about um, one, you know, SLPs are often like the first line, um, you know, we're the providers that are starting to see some of those signs of autism. Um, and I thought what was so beautiful about that article was you gave a lot of really wonderful strategies. Um, so can you first just talk a, a lot about the, the signs of autism for, you know, maybe some parents who are, you know, in the audience watching this or uh, people who aren't as familiar with what that looks like? Yes. So some of the first marker, I'll, I'll say, and, and some of this is clinically based and some of this is, you know, in science, I, I, what I'm about to say. So if I were to say what is like the most red, biggest red flag that I mm -hmm. see mm -hmm. is it is what we call a contact gesture. So if a kid mm -hmm. uses your hand as a tool, like to do something, to open a mm -hmm. peanut butter jar, to open the door, mm -hmm. I think that is one of the most robust predictors. I, I mm -hmm. don't know science-wise if it is. I know mm -hmm. clinically it's very mm -hmm. rare for me to see a kid that does that that does not have autism. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. there's some, uh, some signs that kind of overlap with other things, right? So, like, totally. you can love lining up toys um, if you're also saying, like, look, Mom, I'm lining up all <laughs> of the toys. Isn't that cool? Yeah. You're sharing in that kind of, you know. So there's some things that are overlap, you know, but mm – -hmm. um, you know, you might see, um, you know, another marker is really about kind of the social communication. So like, are you coordinating? Are you pointing mm -hmm. and then looking at something? You don't need language mm -hmm. to do that, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, bubbles, you know, and you're pointing and you're looking, and you're pointing, and you're looking. That's another big one. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, oftentimes, you know, we also see kids who aren't talking, but there can be other reasons. And so it's really mm -hmm. one of the hallmarks, you know, that there are two big buckets, right? The social communication bucket mm -hmm. and kind of those restricted and repetitive behaviors, mm -hmm. um, restricted interest and repetitive behaviors, right? So, you know, insistence on sameness, like always wants to do kind of the same thing or mm -hmm. might, you know, really like the feeling of something. And, you mm -hmm. know, like, um, like my daughter, for example, loves to rub like this little bunny, like on her nose over and over and over again. Like yeah. she, she's six. I'm like waiting for it to, when is it going <laughs> to go? <laughs> um, but she's got great social communication, right? So, right. so it's like, you got to kind of check off and make sure all of the buckets are, mm -hmm. are, are checked. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's not just like these isolated things. So it's, it's really just like being able to interpret the bigger picture. Um, and I definitely see like all of those things that you're mentioning. Absolutely. Um, especially, and it's not just a lack of communication, right? Like if there's that joint attention and the, you know, referencing and like, awareness that like, I'm looking at you, I'm looking at something, um, you know, those are really good signs. And, um, I think that is something that is sometimes overlooked. Um, I think it's just like, there's a lot of like confusion out there about like autism and diagnosis and all these things. Um, and so those are super helpful. Um, what do you think the role of speech language pathologists are as far as the, the early diagnosis, I guess, of, of autism? I mean, I think it's critical. I think I think we're in the homes of families, and I think it's our job together to try to make sense of, you know, what might be influencing learning, right? And mm -hmm. one of those things is autism. It could be other things, but I think it's about mm -hmm. sharing the conversation and opening up that space and just wondering. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I've noticed that he's doing this. You know, what do you what are you thinking? You see that a lot. You, how do you feel like that's mm -hmm. impacting his learning, right? And mm -hmm. it's not coming out right out of the gate and being like, I think this is autism, but nice. it's about recognizing that kids learn differently and experience the world differently. And we, there are some things that, you know, we can do better to help support learning if we know what might be driving um, some of these, you know, learning differences. I will, the other thing I want to just say, a hat tip to girls. I think the way girls present with autism early in development is very different than boys. And I am not confident in my skills uh, I'll just be real, real clear right there. Uh, I'm not as confident. Girls, I think, have um, just a different profile that I don't think we're, we understand quite yet. That that, that there's that we see them, we kind of know what they're gonna look like when they're seven, eight, nine. But mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know what those girls look like when they're two and three. I don't think they look some of them. Some of them don't look like boys. So I will say yeah. that we need more research there. Yeah, I definitely have like just like clinically observed that, and I feel like girls with autism present very differently. Um, and it's really interesting that, uh, you, you mentioned that because I feel like I've seen some girls who are, are you know, less than three. Um, so really young and eventually go on to get a diagnosis. And I'm like, wow, like exactly like you said, like presented very differently than, you know, a lot of the boys that I've seen. Um, so I definitely think that's good to, to highlight and punctuate. Um, you mentioned part of what you mentioned is this idea of saying like, I wonder, or I'm noticing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that as a strategy to start bringing up the conversation? Cause I know there's a lot of SLPs out there that are like, I don't want to like touch this with a 10 foot pole. Like we can't diagnose autism I and it's, and it's uncomfortable conversation um, to bring up so um, can you talk a little bit about some strategies like that um, that you can use when you're working with families and to bring up something that's not an easy conversation yeah I mean I would definitely say that it is not comfortable to say hard, things that are hard for people anybody whatever it is right um, <laughs> I would say though that one of the most important things um, is my relationship with the parents with whom I work. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I don't want to have that conversation, I remind myself that is a moment in time. But for that parent to have worked with me for six months in the home mm -hmm. and then them go and get a diagnosis, and, and well, how will I feel when they come back and say, Meg, did you know? And what am I going to lie? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. no, uh-uh. I owe it mm -hmm. to that family. I 
I need to trust that family the way they trust me with their kid that we mm-hmm. can work in that uncomfortable space together mm-hmm. and that it's okay. That it, maybe I'm wrong and I'm, I'm fine being wrong. I'm so mm-hmm. fine being wrong. <laughs> but, but, to, but to say that, right, that like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this isn't this or maybe it is. I'm just not sure. And I just I, maybe we need more information. What do you think? Mm-hmm. You know, my goal is not to get families to, to do medical diagnostics for autism. My mm-hmm. goal is for families to recognize behaviors in their kid that might influence learning and might be might benefit from additional information. But if a parent doesn't think their kid needs to go to that, I am not the person that's going to push that parent to go because mm-hmm. ultimately I want to do what's best for that unit. And, and so, so you, so the parent goes and gets the diagnosis. What are they going to do with it? Mm-hmm. Do you think they're going to believe it? If you, if you, if, if they feel bullied into going, no, right. no pa- parents, I'm not making judgments about where parents are and their understanding of autism and their kid. Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. helping them as gently as possible. I'm bringing them into the conversation. Let me say that I'm bringing them into my observations and I'm partnering with them to wonder and observe and percolate about all the things with them instead of just keeping it inside and making my own judgments. But it's like a talk aloud. I'm just like, huh, he keeps doing that thing with that, you know, with that like heating vent, like what is that about? You know, like, right. And, and so I think, I, yeah, I just think it's being honest and being vulnerable mm-hmm. and being, you know, real, even if that means it doesn't go always that well. And it hasn't gone always well with me, right? I mean, I have made so mm-hmm. many mistakes, so many mistakes. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that's part of putting yourself out there and doing your best. Yeah. And I think this this conversation translates almost exactly to the uncomfortable conversation about AAC for families who have never been introduced to the idea. Um, I talk a lot about this, like in the work that I do. It's like the way we talk with families and introduce this idea that we might need some type of alternative or augmentative form of communication for their child. Um, we have to be really gentle with that process, and it has to happen after we've established trust. And it has to be over time. It's not something where I just like show up, I roll in, I don't have, I haven't built rapport or trust. And then I'm like, actually, I think we need to do AAC with this two-year-old, right? Because it's, it's, it's hard. It's a, it's a process that families have to go through. And sometimes families aren't ready to have that hard conversation about, you know, using some type of alternative. And, you know, it feels like for a lot of families giving up hope that verbal speech will come, which is a grieving process for a lot of families. Um, and so I completely see every Everything you're saying relating to the AAC conversation. And sometimes we need to have both those conversations. Um, and so it's just like, it's really challenging. But I think it's really, you know, if we, like you said, if we built trust with a family, um, we, we owe it to that family to, to step out of our comfort zone a little bit um, and, and really be open and honest about what we're seeing because ultimately we're there not to make sure that the family, like, you know, uh, agrees with us or does what we want, but instead has the information that they need from the providers that they trust so that they're able to make a decision about what they want to do with the information that we give them. Exactly. I totally agree. Okay. Let's talk about your research. I'm really excited. It just came out. Tell us about, you did a meta-analysis. Tell us all about what that looks like and what you were looking at. Yes. So I will, I want to give big shout out to Bailey Sohn, who is my PhD student, who is the lead author on this. I played a supporting role 
um, which is my favorite thing on in the whole wide world is to mentor the next generation of clinician scientists. Um, and so this is really her study and she really was just wanting to know looking. So we did a meta-analysis a few years ago that was basically looking at the evidence behind, um, parent training and, and parent education in terms of communication outcomes. Mm-hmm. And we found, yay, yay, parent training works. But she, what she really wanted to do is um, unpack that black box of like, okay, well, what actually, what are the, co- the components of, you know, parent coaching that really, and parent instruction that really make it most effective, right? And that mm-hmm. does, you know, coaching in coaching matters, right? Like, mm-hmm. think about it. Like, I'm not going to learn golf all of a sudden and read a manual and be able to do it. Like, it's going to be it's easier if I'm going to be getting that, you know, immediate feedback to yep. learning the new things. And so it was really synthesizing, not just for speech pathology, but, you know, across, you know, other, other um, domains looking at the effects of parent coaching. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we just published that study and um, we're trying to get a few other things published that aren't yet published. If you want to hear about them, please um, tell us everything. <laughs> so we looked at, we, so when COVID hit, um, so COVID is, you know, affecting so many things in so many ways. Yes. One of a, a big thing it's affecting is the wait list for autism diagnoses. So mm-hmm. they were long pre-COVID, but they are yes. super long right now. Mm-hmm. And so we, we did, we did this like, uh, so Vanderbilt University, the, the telepedes, it's this basically televersion of, of this autism screener that the parent, you coach the parents to do via Zoom mm-hmm. and then you score it using zoom and so we pivoted very quickly and tried at, tried it out with some families yeah. and we looked at their satisfaction we we surveyed them and so we're we're writing up those results right now well mm-hmm. we wrote them up there it's in publication land of sitting and waiting for someone to review it right um and then the other thing we looked at was we did two things we looked at states policies and how that might and this is still ongoing. Another PhD student of mine is looking at this is how basically what, how did the EI referral patterns change because mm-hmm. of COVID? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did a survey of providers asking about their, um, like how their intervention changed. It's very interesting mm-hmm. because more people involved parents because of COVID because, well, it's <laughs> really hard to engage a kid via back, Zoom without exactly. the parent. We backed yeah. parents into a corner. <laughs> they had mm-hmm. no place to go but coach. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I would say, so that was an interesting finding related to that, um, related to COVID is that people were changing. What what I actually think is going to be super interesting is will this stick? When we go back to in-person, will providers go back to their old model or will they be like, wait a second, this kind of felt cool. Now, now parent coaching isn't so, isn't so scary because I did it via Zoom. Surely I can do it in person. Exactly. Um, so I don't know what will happen, but those are kind of the two things that we're, we're, we're working on right now. And I have to tell you just from like the AAC angle, I like have never seen more progress with some of my kids. And it's because like these parents, again, you know, unfortunately COVID backed them into a corner and all we had was parent coaching. And so now parents feel empowered that they can now facilitate communication, facilitate interactions. They're modeling more throughout the day. Um, And so I've seen a lot of progress actually. Um, And I'm really interested to see, like you said, what happens. Are we going to like fall back on like our old ways or are we going to continue uh, with a coaching model? Yeah, but I, w- I don't know if I would agree we backed, I don't know who we backed into a corner. I don't know <laughs> if it was the parents or the providers. So yeah. like, 
I, I think I think some parents might be resistant to it, but I think my my personal maybe bias is that there are more providers that are biased that are that are, yeah. that are unlikely to do the parent coaching. Yes, a lot of times parents in our studies are like, "Hey, why you guys are so different than my EI providers," and we're like, "Yep, we are." <laughs> um, so I think yeah, I think it's I think. COVID made providers change, which we'll see if it sticks. Yeah. And I mean, just knowing what we know about the research about AAC and efficacy, we know that if we coach the communication partners, if we coach the circle of support around a child who uses an AAC system, that's the indicator of the most success and progress. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like I was now able like to be in a child's kitchen, like coaching mom on like how to model open when she's opened the refrigerator and the cabinet and all these, you know, amazing naturalistic in, 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 in the real environment opportunities that really have moved the needle um, as far as communication gains. And like you said, I think like empowered parents, um, like I can do this. Wow, I actually can do this. And I, what I'd also know is like, are we able to engage parents differently because it's easier for us to hop on a Zoom at six o'clock at night as opposed to drive to a visit. So like, totally. could we see parents working parents or parents that don't have the the luxury, right? The privilege of being able to be home during the day for when we happen to see kids from nine to five, mm -hmm. you know, I think to your point, like we can hop on a bedtime call to troubleshoot and be mm -hmm. like, Oh, Hey, maybe this is what, maybe this I'm happy to help yeah. here. Like let's brainstorm this like activities and parts of the day that we don't usually have access to because totally. you know, for whatever reason. Yeah. And I do a lot of work with like video modeling and video, mm -hmm. like asynchronous coaching. Um, and oh, so cool. that's been so helpful is because like you said, it's like, I'm like, okay, like I want to see the bedtime routine. Like he's really motivated to read stories at night. Awesome. Like take a video. And then the next session we go through that video together and we pause and, you know, I'm asking reflective questions and I'm really helping, um, you know, guide parents to how to become better communication partners. Um, and that's been super helpful. And I was doing a lot of telepractice prior to COVID-19, but now oh, like, so I, nice. I feel like I'm like, you know, well-versed and well-practiced um, and have thought of even more tools and strategies and systems to kind of put in place to help families. Um, Cause I think that's so important. And then I think there's definitely feels like a disconnect with uh, parents feeling like, I don't know what's happening at school during their speech sessions. Um, and so I think that bridge between school and home has been uh, really helpful for kids who are obviously school age too. No, I think you bring up such an important point, something I don't have expertise in, but want to think all the time about, which is, you know, we have the luxury in EI where, you know, it's, it's expected, whether or not we're doing it is another thing, but talk about where we don't involve parents enough is definitely like school. Cause that's, you know, you've got your caseload and you're all the things. And then it's just, yeah, that's one, one thing we need to do better at, but man, talk about barriers. I know. And I think one of the barriers was like, how do we connect? And I feel like what's nice about COVID is like now we can connect virtually via Zoom and video and all these things that we've practiced, you know, during the yeah. pandemic. Um, now it's like, well, we don't need to not, you know, keep doing that. Right. I still want to see that bedtime routine um, and be able to coach you through that. Um, and so I think the thinking creatively about how we can do that with families is what I'm hoping to see, you know, continue on. So what's interesting about that and, and related to to kids, you know, kids with autism, all kids. I was nervous about the tele everything mm -hmm. because I believe relationships are the key to everything. Like mm -hmm. I just do. Like when I mentor my students, when I work with a parent, my kid, all, all mm -hmm. of that I think is, I just, I, that's my, my belief is about relationships. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was wondering, can we do this? Can you build a relationship via Zoom? 
you know what? You absolutely can. I have watched my therapists build such strong relationships with families. And I teach, I I now have taught a whole cohort of students who I think I'm the closest to, and I've never met them. It's fascinating to me to see what we as humans have been able to do and connect via, via technology. A hundred percent agree. What's a fun fact. So my co-host on my podcast, talking with tech, Chris Bouguet, we've only met in person once. one time and he is like one of my dearest friends I feel like it's crazy to think like I mean obviously we record a podcast every week and so we meet via zoom but it's just like wild to think that I've built such a such a like very close relationship with someone amazing we've met once for like a few hours and that was it (laughs) in person (laughs) yeah I know. It's so crazy. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on. I want to respect your time and I really appreciate all of your insight. I'm really excited to share this obviously with Instagram, but also with uh, the Talking With Tech audience because I know they're going to love to hear this. And I feel like all of your insight, it translates so nicely to AAC. Um, I think there's so much overlap. I feel like we're going to have to do a follow-up follow-up call um, just to talk all like EI, AAC, because I feel like there's definitely not enough research um, kind of joining those two forces together and um, I definitely think there's so much overlap and we can learn so much from each other Um, just because a lot of the kids that we work with AAC wise it doesn't you know matter their age their developmental age or their chronological age it's really like they're emerging communicators Um, so we're teaching the same strategies that we're teaching for early intervention Uh, we're just adding that layer of now we have to you know figure out how to use this tool or this device so awesome can I just say one last thing yes please if there are any clinicians out there who we, I'm always, we are always looking to partner for, with people that are on the ground. I say in the wild, <laughs> in the wild, uh, to help us be better. And like, the, what's the next thing we need to study? Just like relationships with families. Like that's how I feel about relationships with clinicians. And so mm-hmm. if you're thinking like, wow, how do I become part of science? Or I have a question or any of that, like, please, we're at ei.northwestern.edu. That's our website. We have a way to click and just, we can schedule a call to be like, hey, who are you? And just start to build those relationships. But it's so important to me that we um, we develop those relations. We, we maintain relationships with clinicians. And so I just wanted, if you don't know me or don't know our group, I hope to get to know you. And I want you to reach out if you're at, if this at all resonates with what you do in your practice. Amazing. And we'll definitely link to that in the show notes of the podcast so everyone can have direct access to you and all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you again so much, Meg, for coming on. I'm so excited to have met you. And this is just the first of hopefully many conversations we can have together. Yay! Awesome. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Take care.